This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. As, uh, again, I just want to say welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to Church of the Harvest. Uh, as I always say, we're just a small expression of the body of Christ. We're a group of Christ followers that we've decided that we are stronger together than we are individually, and we have linked arms to accomplish God's purposes in the earth. Can I get an amen? amen. Our vision at Harvest, guys, if you're a part of the Harvest family, say it with me. Our vision is to make, grow, and equip followers of Jesus to fulfill their God-given purpose in life. And we do that three ways, through community, discipleship, and outreach, right? So over the past year, we have gone through the Bible. You guys enjoyed the story, right? We went through the Bible from cover to cover. We understood God's plan from the beginning of time up until today and into eternity. And have you realized that when, I, when I, we went through the story last year, I was like, man, we spent a lot of time on the Old Testament. It is so much longer. But we are currently living, we live in the New Testament. When you look at your Bible and you see, yeah, thank God. When you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, guys, your life is right there. You're in that book. You're in the New Testament. And so when we got to the New Testament, that's when it becomes really personal for us, right? Because that's where we're at. That's where we live. It's about our life. It's about our freedom. It's about our promises. It's about our inheritance. It's about our authority. It's about our responsibility in the kingdom of God, isn't it? And so the New Testament gets very personal to us. And so that's why I told you I wanted to spend more time in the, in the New Testament. I really wanted to focus on who the church was meant to be and what we were to look like in the world today. And so over the past few months, we've discussed identity and kind of the responsibility of the family of God, of Christ followers, people who have repented and surrendered their life to the lordship of Jesus. So we're going to spend time this year, like I said, uh, discussing the practicalities of the Christian life, of the Christian walk. And we'll continue on through the New Testament, uh, looking at the instructions that God gives his followers. And, and yes, as we talked about in our vision you know, for the church, we all, hopefully all of us, we want to fulfill our God-given purpose in life, right? Isn't that what you want as a Christ follower? But how many of you know that to do that, there's things we've got to know? There's things we've got to know to fulfill God's purposes. And, you know, I, I think I said this a few weeks ago, but There's a lot of things going on in the world. There's a lot of things going on in our lives. And, you know, we, we, we like to talk about 2020. I don't know if we like to talk about it. <laughs> but we refer to 2020 and we go, whew, what a year. Guys, I say, what a great time to be alive. God is working. He is fulfilling his purposes throughout the earth. And he's using us to do it. But I think that much of the church, and I think well, the great thing that, that really began happening, I think God used many of the things that happened to shake the church. Sometimes we need a good shaking. Remember something that happened in your life or somebody you encountered in your life that gave you a good shaking, shook you up? Sometimes a shaking is a great thing. Because I think there's a lot of people today, a lot of Christians that are peeking out their front door, just peeking out and going, what am I supposed to do now? What, what, is a, what is a Christ follower really supposed to look like? How am I supposed to push forward and be successful and accomplish God's purposes in a society that is increasingly contrary to everything that I stand for? I think a lot of Christians have decided, well, I think it's easier just not to deal with the world and just, just deal with my Christian friend over here. <laughs> dealing with the church isn't always easier than dealing with the world. <laughs> or maybe I'll just stay home and keep to myself at this point. I don't know how to make a difference. I don't know when and how to take a stand. What does God want from me? And guys, here's the good news. The Bible has every answer. It's all there. So I, I told you back a, a couple months ago that you were going to push through in the epistles, but I, I want to hold up on that for just a minute. 
I think we need to start with Jesus. <laughs> what did Jesus tell us and how we're to conduct ourselves in this life? I was going to start by teaching the Beatitudes, and I am. I am going to do that. But, um, but it really grew so much more than that. And, and uh, we're going to spend the next, I don't know how many weeks actually, going through the Sermon on the Mount. And I would suggest to you that there is so much within this to lead us and to guide us through this life. And, and I, I don't know what mindset you have, what perspective you're coming from, but I don't believe the world was that much different back then than it is today. People are like, the world is such a, it's, things are so much worse today. Really? You really think so? I would argue that it is not at all. They were dealing with things we haven't begun to encounter. So before we jump in, before we start talking about the, the Sermon on the Mount, um, I love history and I want to give you a little bit of history for a few minutes. I want us to back up just a little bit and I want us to look at the events leading up to the Sermon on the Mount and I want us to talk about that for a minute. And so if you do have your Bibles, uh, we will be in Matthew chapter 5 today. That's where the Sermon on the Mount is it's found in, verse, in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so you can go to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we also, Shauna mentioned the little card on the chair in front of you. You can scan that. You can pull up notes and you can follow along on your phone or your tablet or whatever it is that you may have. You can follow along with the notes on there as well. But Matthew is where, actually, we went through the story. Matthew is where we get to the New Testament, right? That's when things begin to change. And in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, Matthew chapter 1 and 2 deal with the birth of Jesus. That's what God had been trying to do all along with Israel, just trying to get Jesus into the earth, right? He can get to that point, Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is born. Matthew chapter 1 and 2, he's born. Um, they, um, Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they escape to Egypt. Uh, they come back to Israel. They settle in the town of Nazareth, right? By Matthew chapter 3, it jumps. And Jesus has grown, and he's at the Jordan River, and he gets baptized in water by John the Baptist, right? We know that he is also baptized in the Holy Spirit and endued with power, correct? And so there in Matthew chapter 3, um, that happens. He's, he's baptized in water, baptized in the Holy Spirit. In chapter 4, what happens next? He's led right on into the wilderness, right? He's led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, what does he do? Puts the devil right under his feet. As you continue on in chapter 4, uh, we see Jesus moves to the town of Capernaum. And he makes it his ministry base of operations. He calls his first disciples. And he begins to travel around the area of Galilee. And the Bible says, announcing the good news of the kingdom of God. And we see here the first times that he heals the sick and casts out demons. So this is the beginning. Everybody say the beginning. This is right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right? And so that's Matthew chapter 1 through 4. He's been born, he's been baptized, tempted, moved to Capernaum, began to minister around the area of Galilee. Then we get to chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5, like I say, this is the beginning of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you want to just look there, let's look at the first two scriptures there real quick. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. So this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. But let me tell you what. If you can see in the scripture, he's already being noticed. He's already getting attention, Right? Because we see here that he gets up one morning, probably in Capernaum right there, and he sees a crowd already starting to gather, probably right outside the synagogue right there. Uh, some of you who were in Israel with us a year and a half ago, you saw where the synagogue was and where Jesus lived. And it, I mean, it was a stone's throw away. The crowd was already gathering. Maybe, they were gonna, maybe, we'll see one of these, maybe we'll see one of these healings. Maybe we'll see a demon cast out. So the crowd's gathering together. And it says that Jesus goes up on a mountainside next to the Sea of Galilee and begins to teach. Now, nobody knows exactly where the Sermon on the Mount took place, but, um, but we know that it was there on the Sea of Galilee. And um, some of you may not know this, but I learned this a year and a half ago. The Sea of Galilee is not real large. The Sea of Galilee is actually not a sea. It's just a nice-sized lake, right? The, the shoreline is only about 30, 
33 square miles, I mean 33 miles of shoreline. Not real big. And so back then they probably could have traveled all the way around it in a day. And so Jesus is right there in that area. He's probably near Capernaum um, or back in, on the Sea of Galilee. It was called Lake Gennesaret. Sometimes it's called Lake Tiberias because Tiberias was the largest city on the lake there. And, uh, and I just, I had to show you guys, some of you saw my title slide, if you put it up right there. I, I went looking for art and, and actually I took that picture with my iPhone. And, um, and you can see a few people you would know, you may know there. Some of you know Miss Glenda Grand and she's in the front. I'm sure she loves her front, backside on the front of our title slide here. But uh, in the very next one, uh, you see a, the guitar sticking up. It's on Lauren's back. She's carrying a guitar. And, and uh, you've got Miss um, uh, Jack and, and Terry and Miss Nydia and Victoria and, and, and different ones along there. I actually zoomed in on my phone to see who was who. But, but guys, this is a spot. You're looking due south right here, straight south. And the Sea of Galilee, if you were standing right there, you would look out and off to the side, the Sea of Galilee would come around and you would see the shoreline going south on this side. You got this jutting out right here on the other side of this is uh, the city of Tiberias and it, it comes back around this way. But this is traditionally the spot where, you know, they, they say the Sermon on the Mount may have been taught because if you were standing right there and you look down to the left, you can actually see the ruins of the city of Capernaum on the, on the, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee right there. And so this was a nice open spot. There's actually not mountains right behind Capernaum. Uh, this is just off to the uh, west of Capernaum. And so this is the closest place where you've got hills and stuff. And so they believe this may have been um, possibly a spot where Jesus may have uh, taught the Sermon on the Mount. If not, it was probably very close. So, so anyway, uh, another thing I want to mention before we jump into it is um, a, a common misconception about the Sermon on the Mount. Many of us have seen paintings, and we've seen these paintings of Jesus teaching, and a painting called the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus teaching these big crowds, right? They don't actually believe the Sermon on the Mount was taught to a crowd. And actually, if you look back at the scripture, you may see this. If we go back again to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says, One day as he saw the crowds gathering... What did Jesus do? He saw them gathering. Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down. And who's to say gathered around him? His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. It's most likely it's a different sentence. It's not referring to the crowds. It's talking about the disciples. And so many actually believe that Jesus saw the crowd gathering and he kind of slipped away. And he got his disciples, and they went up on this hillside. He sits down, they gather around him, and he begins to teach them. Now, what you'll see is that by chapter 7, many believe that in chapter 7, the crowd caught up to them. The crowd found them. Because in chapter 7, like I say, the Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5, 6, and 7. In chapter 7, suddenly in the middle of it, if you're reading it, you'll notice there's a sudden shift as Jesus is teaching. He had, been teaching, um, he had been teaching about things like um, discipleship and spiritual maturity. And all of a sudden, he shifts and goes back to the basics, almost back to like, like salvation. And so many believe, and actually if you look at it, the beginning of chapter 5 talks about the crowd gathering, but it says the disciples are gathered around him. At the end of chapter 7, it says that the crowd was gathered around him when he finishes it. So the Sermon on the Mount is the longest teaching that we have of Jesus is, and I would argue, probably one of the most practical. How many of you like practical teaching? You like it when somebody teaches in such a way that you can go home and go, wow, I can apply that to my life today in this area. I love that. And so the Sermon on the Mount teaches us, it actually teaches us how to find happiness and joy. The Sermon on the Mount teaches what we call the Beatitudes, which we're going to talk about, we're going to start on. It teaches us how to prosper it instructs us in our relationship with the Lord. It uh, teaches us how to pray. It's where we find the Lord's prayer. Uh, it instructs us in our relationships with our fellow man. So the Sermon on the Mount goes through all these different areas. And one of the, another cool thing about the Sermon on the Mount is that it's a progression. In chapter 5, Jesus goes through the Beatitudes and then he talks about sin, he talks about murder, and he talks about revenge and these things. And then chapter 6, he begins to shift and he begins to talk about giving and about prayer and about fasting and some of these things. And then, uh, oh, and, and by the end of chapter 6, he's talking about the motives of the human heart. That's a big one. 
And then by chapter 7, he begins addressing pride and arrogance and judging others. And then, like I said, all of a sudden you'll see this shift in direction in chapter 7. All of a sudden he changes direction because I believe part of it was his, his, who he was speaking to, his audience changed. And so all of a sudden you see this shift in direction and this is where he begins to talk about how to enter the kingdom of God. He begins to talk about the narrow gate. He talks about how to be a true disciple. And again, like I say, many believe that this is probably where the crowds caught up and he shifts kind of back to, uh, back to the basics from what he was, he was um, teaching the disciples. But to me, like I said, one of the coolest things about the Sermon on the Mount is how practical it is. It is, it is real life. It was applicable back then, and it's just as applicable in our lives today. And you'll see that more and more as we walk through it. So back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, he goes up on this mountainside. The disciples gather around him. He begins to teach. And then in verse 3, um, we see the beginning of what we call the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes uh, were kind of, I would describe it as almost kind of an introduction to, to the Sermon on the Mount. And in this, what you'll find as we go through it, we're going to hit kind of like the first four today. And what you'll see is, this, is that the Beatitudes are kind of split into two sections. You've got the Beatitudes that kind of deal with taking in the Word of God. And you've got the Beatitudes that have to do with putting out the Word of God. And you'll see that, um, you'll see that as we go along. And, and it, it's really important because you guys know uh, James chapter 1 verse 22 says that we are to be doers of the Word, not hearers only. What happens if we're a hearer but not a doer? We deceive ourselves, right? And so when we talk about taking in the Word of God, we're talking about being a hearer, right? Is that a bad thing? No, it's an awesome thing. Well, we need to be hearers of the word, right? But putting out the word of God would be that being a doer of the word. Both are important, but really you shouldn't have one without the other. You can't be a doer without being a hearer, correct? But you shouldn't really be a hearer if you're not willing to be a doer. Make sense? Uh, guys, I, I know of folks who are atheists that have books of the Bible memorized. It's nothing but words. They're hearers, not doers, right? It's like breathing. We breathe in, we breathe out. We should breathe in and breathe out the word of God. So taking in the word of God is knowledge, right? We're gaining knowledge. But the correct application of knowledge is what? That's wisdom. You have to have knowledge before you can produce wisdom, right? And we have to understand that this gaining of knowledge, again, is our responsibility, right? He tells us not to just be hearers. When, when he says that, he is telling us to be hearers, right? He, he is telling us to do that in addition to being a doer. God's not going to do it for you. He's not going to force it into your brain. You can't download it like the matrix or something. It takes time and it takes discipline. You've got to dig in and study the Word of God. And once you have taken in the Word of God, once you've begun to gain knowledge, hopefully wisdom begins to be produced in your life as you become a doer of the Word. Remembering that wisdom is that correct application of knowledge. And if you go back and we were just talking about James chapter 1 and verse 5, it says, if any of you ask, lacks wisdom, what do you need to do? Ask, let them ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. We know that Solomon asked for wisdom, right? And it was given to him generously. It was. Study God's word. Ask him to fill you with wisdom. I would encourage you, every time you open the word of God, don't just start reading words. Stop and pray for a moment. Silence yourself. Invite the Holy Spirit to be a part of your time there and say, Lord, I want you to speak to me today as I get into your word. I want you to point out the things that you want me to see. I want you to show me what you want me to do. I want to say what you want me to say. I want to do what you want me to do. Holy Spirit, lead me and guide me. 
And he'll do it. And as you read, you will be filled with knowledge. And he will give you wisdom and understanding. And you'll find that in situations in life, you'll have the right words in the right moments. The word of God won't just be words to you. It will be practical application in your life. You will be a doer of the word. And you guys know as well as I do that we can't always stop stupid, doubtful thoughts from entering our minds sometimes, right? Happens sometimes. But if you're full of the word of God, if you're full of the word of God, you can be a doer because you, you will have the right words to cast down those thoughts, right? You will have the ability to keep your mind on the truth of God's word and to focus on kingdom reality instead of what your eyes see or your ears hear. There are people that try to get saved and right with God every week of their life. They may have some knowledge, but they don't have understanding. Because if you've got the word of God in you, there is no demon in hell that will be able to convince you that you're not saved and belong to the Lord. You will have the right words to speak in the moment when that lie comes, and you'll be able to speak to it and cast it down, right? You can silence the enemy and sit confident, knowing that you're a son or daughter of God. So for the next few minutes, let's start at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to go right on into the, into the next verse. This is, in, in verse 3, we have the very first words that Jesus speaks. Jesus sat down. Disciples gathered around him, and he began to speak. And what is the first thing he says? And, and by the way, I know you guys know I normally have points, two, three, four points. My points are the scriptures today. Our points are going to be the four, first four Beatitudes, okay? So what's he say? The first, Jesus opens his mouth, and the first thing he says is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I wonder if that was as confusing to the disciples as maybe it was to us the first time we read it. I wonder if they kind of... Did that, what's that thing Jack does, our dog? You say something to him and he goes, huh? what? Hmm? His head always tilts to the side. Look at it from the New Living Translation for a minute. It says, God blesses those who are poor and realizes their need for him for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. All right, go back to the English Standard Version for a second, the last one. So there's a couple things we need to look at here. If we're going to understand what Jesus is saying in his very first words here. First thing we got to look at is to realize that the word that we translate blessed is the Greek word makarios. And makarios means happy and jubilant. How many of you would say that sounds awesome? Put a big smile on your face. Happy and jubilant. What do you look like happy and jubilant? Now, let me say this. This is not the same word happy that most people refer to today, that most people use. You guys have heard me say that God didn't promise happiness. I'm talking about the worldly concept of happiness. Because today in our society, happiness generally means my circumstances are favorable and things are going my way. That's not always going to be the case. Often that's not going to be the case. Right? Does that mean you can't be happy? Hmm. Today, generally, people are happy when things are going their way. Things are going my way, I'm happy. Things aren't, I'm unhappy. It's really self-centered, right? This is different. Jesus is wanting us to have a kind of joy and happiness that doesn't depend upon our emotion or possession or favorable circumstances in life, right? Instead, what he wants us to have is a happiness that remains constant in every situation. We all want that, right? But what does he say? He says, blessed, happy, jubilant are the, those who are poor. Well, we don't want that, do we? Poor? I'm happy and jubilant if I'm poor. Remember how I've talked about how the things of the world are so contrary and so opposed to the things of the kingdom? 
The world reads this and goes, I'm going to be happy if I'm poor. I've been there and done that and I wasn't. Right? But when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, the poor he's referring to, he's not talking about the state of affairs of your bank account. It had nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with your financial status. The Greek word translated poor here, it means, um, it means destitute or bankrupt. Again, not referring to financial status. Many versions say blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Guys, it's not about the state of your bank account. It's about the state of your heart, right? It says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They're blessed. They're happy and joyful. They can be in every situation, and the kingdom of God is theirs. Guys, really, this first beatitude, this is really the beatitude of salvation. This is the beatitude of the new birth. What does poor in spirit refer to? It refers to the moment when a person recognizes that they're spiritually bankrupt. It's a moment when a person realizes that they cannot make the most minute, the smallest payment toward the debt that they owe, ever. And they recognize their only hope is found in a loving, merciful God. That's the poor spirit. This is that big God, little me thing. Know what I'm talking about? It's when we're able to say, God, I am spiritually lost and doomed without you. Right? So blessed are the poor in spirit. How many of you have been there? Poor in spirit. You realize that you are lost and doomed without Jesus. So blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Guys, this, this is the happy jubilant part. This is it. You can be happy and jubilant in every situation when you realize that your hope is found in Jesus. And when your hope is in this shape, the kingdom of heaven is yours. If you haven't received the kingdom of heaven, it's not God's fault. It's our fault, right? Yeah, I'm talking about salvation, but there's, there's another big thing in this. I'm talking about the blessing that comes with being a child of God. As a Christ follower, let me say this. You may be sitting there and you don't feel real well today. Guess what? You're blessed. You can be happy and jubilant. Why? Because the Bible says healing belongs to you. The kingdom of heaven is yours. You may be sitting here and your bank account may be on zero. It may be in the negative. You can be happy and you can be jubilant because the kingdom of heaven is yours and prosperity belongs to you. If the kingdom of heaven is yours, then the riches and the blessing and the prosperity of heaven belong to you. Regardless of whether you've received them all or not, right? It's yours. And that is reason to rejoice and to be jubilant. You're blessed when you recognize that you're spiritually bankrupt without Jesus. You surrender your life to him. And when you do this, understand that the kingdom of heaven is yours along with all of its blessings and promises that come with it. Awesome. Is that not awesome, guys? So, number one, the first thing Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, go to verse four. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. So we're blessed if we're poor and now we're blessed if we mourn. Woo! We gotta have understanding, guys. This is why we've gotta dig into the word of God. Now, when we think about mourning, think about losing a loved one usually, right? or a pet, or whatever it may be. Usually when we're in mourning, we have suffered great loss. Is it wrong to mourn? Not at all. Not at all. But 
what he's referring to here, I generally see this a couple different ways, but let's, let's refer to that kind of mourning for just a moment. Because as a Christ follower, you are blessed even when you mourn. And what does it say? Because what does it say next? For they shall be comforted. Who's your comforter? The Holy Spirit. Does the new birth stop trials from happening in our lives? Nope. You're going to have moments in this life where you're going to mourn? Yep. But you've got the Holy Spirit there, the best comforter in the entire universe. And he's walking with you and he's got his arms around you. And he's there to encourage you and to lift you up. That's reason to be happy and jubilant, even in the midst of sorrows and mourning. And you know, when the unbeliever mourns, there's no hope. There's no answers. There's no comforter. Can you imagine? If you have recognized your spiritual bankruptcy, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, then you're blessed when you mourn because you have the greatest comforter in the universe. And actually, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 tells us that we don't have to mourn like those who don't have hope. So, yes, we may mourn, but it's not going to be the same. Because in that mourning, we have a hope within us that the world doesn't have. And then the other side of the statement, I told you, I've always kind of looked at this a different way. I believe that, that part of the mourning that Jesus is referring to in the scripture is how we feel about our sin when we surrender our life to Jesus. Especially when we recognize the fact that it was our sin that sent him to the cross. There is a godly sorrow that rises up within us in those moments. Many times it's what leads us to repentance, right? And it brings a change to our hearts and our minds. And in that moment as we repent, Holy Spirit is there to comfort us. We are truly blessed. We have reason in the darkest moments to be happy and jubilant. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And what's the next one? Matthew 5 5. Third thing he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I think most people have the wrong idea of meek. Most people hear meek and they think weak, right? They think of, some of you who like Captain America when he was Steve Rogers, the little guy who was always getting beat up in the back alley, right? Nothing could be further from the truth. Some translations translate the word that, we, that is meek there, they translate it humble. And Humility, I would present to you that humility is not a weakness of anything. Humility is really a strength that's under control. Guys, Jesus was strong and he feared no man. Yet he was meek and he was always submissive and obedient to his father, right? That's humility. It's strength under control. And this type of meekness, this type of humility isn't something that we're born with. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's strength under control and the Holy Spirit uses that strength and points it in the right direction so that it can be used in a God-honoring way. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will do what? He will exalt you. I would present to you too that this type of humility also means being teachable. Somebody say ouch. We must be meek and humble. Actually, go back if you look at James chapter 1 verse 21. It says, look at this. It says, receive with meekness the implanted word, the word of God, which is able to save your souls. So we have to be humble, we have to be meek in order to receive from the word of God, even just to be saved. We bowed our lives in humility, right? 
And it's amazing. When we're meek and humble, it's amazing. We can learn in almost every situation that we encounter. We can learn from some of the people that we disagree with the most when we're meek and we're humble. And we have to be open and we have to be teachable. And what happens when we're meek? It says, blessed are the meek for what? For they shall inherit the earth. Now, what is this referring to? Because I'm already in the earth. You already in the earth? Inherit the earth. What does that mean? Guys, it's referring to the earth and what comes with it. It's referring to the blessing and the wealth of the earth. When you're humble and meek, when you're teachable in the word of God, the blessings of the earth chase you down. It's prosperity. Y'all know Proverbs 13, 22 says the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just, for the righteous, right? I think, I personally think right now, if there's one thing I could say that the church of Jesus, especially in America, needs to learn today, we need to learn how to be teachable. We live in this prideful, know-it-all society. We can't let that be us. We've got to dig into the Word of God with an open heart. We've got to submit ourselves to spiritual authority with an open heart. We've got to make sure that we don't just learn, that we don't just hear, that we don't just gain knowledge, but that we become a doer of the Word. And we're ready to make changes and adjustments as necessary. Because the teachable person will prosper. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek doesn't mean weak. It means strength under control of the Holy Spirit. Through meekness and humility that we receive from God's word. Meekness means that we are teachable. And with that comes the blessing and prosperity of the earth. Y'all seeing the promises here as we receive the word of God? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the weak. Let's do one more. Verse six. Fourth thing he says to the disciples are blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. So when I talk about taking in the word of God, Jesus picked the perfect words, hunger and thirst. That describes it perfectly. Being teachable only makes us more hungry and more thirsty for the word of God. And what does it say to word of hunger and thirst for? Righteousness. And the word that's translated righteousness means, it means right standing with a perfect and a holy God. And I think that Jesus uses the term hunger and he uses the word thirst because these are two of the strongest impulses of the human being, right? Two of the very most basic necessities, food and water. Jesus is saying here that just as we hunger and we thirst in the natural, our spirit man hungers and thirsts as well, doesn't it? I was thinking that when a baby is born, he opens himself up to receiving milk, right? Hopefully. I haven't seen one yet that has a problem opening their mouth. They open themselves up to receive nourishment, to receive what they're needed, what they need in a moment to receive milk. That milk produces his body to grow. And with that, it produces an appetite for more, right? And as time goes on, he goes from drinking milk to eating more complex foods like meats and vegetables eventually, right? These are things that his body is needing and craving. And as he takes those things in, his body really begins to grow and begins to become strong, right? So in the same way, as a Christ follower, we got to start off with what Peter calls the spiritual milk of the word, We're a new believer. We don't know a whole lot. We don't start with the meat and the vegetables. We start with the milk in in this new birth, in this new life, right? 
And so as we open ourselves up and we begin to consume, as Peter said, the spiritual milk of the word, we begin to develop a deeper hunger and a deeper thirst for God's truth in our lives. So just like we hunger for food and we thirst for water in the natural, Jesus is saying that we should hunger and we should thirst for righteousness because it is just as necessary for your spirit man. And I, I thought of this yesterday. Here's a good thing. You know how we can eat and drink too much in the natural sometimes? None of us are ever guilty of that, right? You can't do it with the spirit man. It's not true in the, the spirit man. When you hunger and thirst, God will fill you. Just like a baby crying for its mother. If you hunger and thirst, God's going to fill you, right? But he wants to fill you not till you're just full, but until you are overflowing. And in the spirit, you can live from a place of overflow. Just when you think you know enough of God's word, get in it some more. Just when you think you're praying enough, pray some more. You can't get enough. You can't get too much. In the natural, we don't always need to go back for seconds and thirds. You know, guys, when your wife nudges you, you don't need that. You don't need any more. Stop. Not with the spirit, man. We keep running back for more, right? And what's the promise associated with this? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I don't want to make y'all hungry thinking about lunch yet. But don't you love a good meal? And you stop back, step back, and you're like, whew, that was so good. You feel so satisfied. Man, man, that was good. Guys, you can have the same feeling of satisfaction in your spirit because you are constantly feeding on the word of God and your relationship with him that you have with him by the Holy Spirit, right? Now I'm gonna stop there. That's good, but we're not, we haven't scratched the surface yet. We got the whole Sermon on the Mount to go. I encourage you guys, start reading it. Get it in you this week. So what have we covered? The fact that blessing, happiness, jubilation is yours as a Christ follower. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're blessed when you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy without Jesus. And you surrender your life to him. When you do that, the kingdom of heaven is yours with all its blessings and promises. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The Holy Spirit is there to comfort us in any situation that we may encounter in this life. Even as we repent of our sin. Whatever it is we mourn in this life, we can be filled with happiness and joy and hope. Thirdly, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek doesn't mean weak. Strength under control. It's through meekness and humility that we receive from the Word of God. Also means that we are teachable, and with that comes the blessing and prosperity of the earth. And then lastly, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And guys, this is huge because we know how to fill our belly. But I believe much of the body of Christ is walking around today experiencing just living from a place of spiritual famine and starvation. They know something is off. That may be you. You know something's not right. You're not experiencing God's promises in your life. But the answer is simple. Start receiving the milk of the word. Begin filling yourself with God's word and what he says. Be consistent in it. Allow it to develop in you a stronger, a deeper hunger and thirst for more. And when you do, things will begin to change in your life. And you will go from living in a place of starvation and famine to living from a place of overflow and satisfaction because you're finally receiving the nourishment that your spirit man needs. 
It's a lot of promises, guys. Good stuff. Very practical. Amen? Let's stand up on our feet. I want to invite the worship team to come up as we close. As you stand up, I just ask you just to just close your eyes with me for just a, just a moment or two here. Guys, it's, it's that very first beatitude. I would ask you, as I do every week, let me ask it in a different way. Have you recognized your spiritual bankruptcy? Have you recognized that you are utterly lost and doomed without Jesus? Have you laid your life down and surrendered to his lordship? If not, that could be why you can't seem to get ahead. It could be why you can't seem to find hope. You feel that, have that hopeless feeling down deep. It could be why you feel alone. why you feel lost it is why you feel lost guys our sins separated us from a holy God but in the greatest love story the world has ever known Jesus made a way we were separated from the Father but Jesus went to the cross and in doing so he opened the door right up right back up so that we could run back into the Father's arms. He paid the price for our sin. He took what we deserved and he paid the price for himself. Without him, we are spiritually bankrupt. You can't make the first payment in a thousand lifetimes in what you owe. But Jesus paid the price. He looked at you and he said, I love them and I'm gonna pay their price in full. Your responsibility now is to give your life back to him. Recognize that you're spiritually destitute. Say, Jesus, I'm lost without you. And so I give my life to you to tell him, Jesus, I, I receive your sacrifice. And I'm eternally grateful. And I will live for you all the days of my life. I turn from my sin. I turn from my shame. I turn from my bad attitudes. I turn from my selfishness. And I promise I'm going to live for you from this day forward. Every head bowed in this place. If you're here and you would say, I need to surrender my life to Jesus today, I want you to lift your hand up high. Who would say, I need Jesus? your hands high. Anybody in this place would say, I need Jesus today. You may be watching online. Whether it's today or a year from now that you're watching this service, the Holy Spirit is just as strong right now in that room, wherever it may be, wherever you're at. The Holy Spirit is working on your heart. He's tugging at you and he's saying, come on. This is what you were born for. Surrender to him today. We're going to pray a prayer together just before we close. And if you pray it with us and you mean it with all your heart, the Bible says you become that new creation. That new birth becomes yours. The kingdom of heaven becomes yours. You're a son. You're a daughter of the Most High God. And all the promises and blessings of heaven are yours. Not the day you die, but today. The main moment you make the decision life will never be the same. If that's you, just pray. Pray something like this. Just say, dear God, I recognize that I am spiritually bankrupt. I recognize that I owe a huge debt. I have no hope of ever repaying. But I thank you. Thank you for Jesus. 
He didn't deserve the punishment. He didn't deserve my punishment. He didn't deserve any punishment. But he took mine. He paid the price for me. He took the debt that I owed. In exchange, he gives me everything. So Lord, I repent of my sinful ways. Repent of my past. I I lay everything at your feet. And Jesus, I declare this day and I confess from this day forward that you are Lord of my life. And I'm gonna live for you. I'm not turning back. I'm running forward hand in hand with you from this day forward. Holy Spirit, fill me and empower me to be everything you've called me to be. I'll follow you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662-890-1573 or toll free at 866-383-8277. You are Lord, I'm a sinner.